Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks, Deconstructing Books That Wrecked Us. As children, we're taught to listen to adults and other authorities, but adults teach us very different things, and we end up trying to operate on very different messages. The older we get, the more conflicting messages begin piling up until we no longer know what is right or true anymore. Deconstruction is the picking apart of these various messages to understand which ones work for us and which ones don't. In this podcast, I will deconstruct some of the most popular books in Christianity to determine which ones have harmful messages and what those messages are, so you can decide for yourself which ones are worth keeping and which need to be thrown away. Okay, so today I want to continue on with love and respect, and I want to continue talking about submission because this is such a critical dynamic to understand because it is at the root of so many of the most abusive relationships and I mean everywhere uh, church abuse uh, business abuse um, abuse in uh, marriages and interpersonal relationships so uh, people that talk a lot about submission they don't name the opposite of that okay so if, if one person is supposed to be in submission to another person it would inherently mean that uh, it is the right or position of the other person to dominate okay um, I posted a couple things on social media and one of the things that I want to talk about today is how there is a I don't know what you would call it, a, a, a sexual subgroup, let's just say. Uh, it's called BDSM. Some people may have heard of it. It's called uh, bondage sadomasochism, okay? So the sadomasochism is you have a sadist. You have a person that actually enjoys um, inflicting pain. And then you have a masochist, which is someone who uh, receives pain. Or in in some way shape or form they have come to believe that they deserve pain okay and in some cases this is physical pain but it can also be psychological pain it can be emotional pain and whether we know it or not these dynamics the dynamics that drive these BDSM relationships are actually a lot more present in our day-to-day life than we recognize. And this is why understanding these dynamics that drive these relationships are so important, okay? Um, A subset of the world of BDSM, if you want to say that, is um, it's called DS, which is Dominant Submissive. And this is what we need to be aware of. This is, you know, when I talk about when you play the tape forward, okay, sometimes these concepts are presented in a very um, light or casual way, okay? They're seeds. But this is what playing the tape is, playing the tape forward is going, okay, if I plant these seeds and I water them and I, you know, um, tend to them and I care for them. What is the, what is the fruit that these are eventually going to bear? Okay. And so this is the problem is when, 
like, you know, we're talking about this good Christian book, Love and Respect, right? It's, it's promoted by pastors. It's found throughout churches. And then I'm talking about this type of sexuality. And a lot of people aren't going to see the connection between those two. And it's very, it's very prevalent. Okay. And that's why I want to talk about this is because what we're really talking about here is we're talking about all of the exact same dynamics that exist in this world of bondage and sadomasochism. There is a direct tie in between these two. Okay. For instance, um, uh, Emerson Egricks uses these two acronyms, right? And one of them is uh, like the things that women are supposed to remember about men. And then there's the things that men are supposed to remember about women. Okay. And these dominant submissive elements are so um, prevalent in, in these two acronyms, right? And so remember how I talked about what he did is he, he came across this one scripture verse and then he sat and he thought about it for a while and he's like yes that makes so much sense and then he wrote this whole entire book and then he goes out and he talks to a bunch of other men particularly pastors and religious leaders and he's like see this is how it's supposed to be and all these men go yeah 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 that sounds so right that sounds so right of course it sounds right to them okay because what he's actually promoting is a very watered down form of BDSM, okay? Dominant and submissive. That's, that is the inherent nature of BDSM. And this is exactly what he is promoting right here, okay? So his very first letter in, in chairs, which is, you know, women need to understand this about men. His very first one is conquest. Do you know what another word for conquest is? To dominate. And it's, it's absolutely undeniable that churches teach that women are supposed to be submissive to their husbands. And so what is the opposite of a submissive? A dominant. These are the, the relational fundamentals of BDSM. Okay, so his first thing is he says conquest. Now, one of the things that I find interesting and uh, shouldn't really be surprising is that uh, I found a lot of places online that talk about, you know, the acronym for men. And it's, you know, women need to understand this. And so every one of the words comes with this. Um, you need to appreciate his need for this. You need to appreciate his need for that. But what's also interesting is he uses these these very um kind of like harsh words. And then he tries to sort of soften them up with his appreciate his need for this. Okay. When it comes to the women's acronym, however, there's none of that. Oh, you need to appreciate her need for this or appreciate her need for that. Okay. In addition, when we get to the women's acronym, I'm going to show you how his acronym uh, really just kind of supports him how even even the women's acronym the the women need to do this it's really men need this and then women need to do this for men there's there's nothing in here about how men need to sacrifice for women it's all about how women need to sacrifice for men okay so his um chair's acronym is conquest 
appreciate his need to work and achieve. Hierarchy, okay, once again, what is a dominant submissive relationship? It's a hierarchical relationship, okay? So uh, you need to uh, appreciate his desire to protect and provide, okay? So that sounds very, like, heartwarming, right? Like he's just, it's really just about him trying to protect you, honey, and provide for you. That's really all he wants. That's all hierarchy means. Okay, that has nothing to do with what hierarchy means. Hierarchy is about power. Hierarchy is about being above. Hierarchy is about being over. And so he, you know, he says, oh, it's his desire to protect and provide okay again that sounds very benign until we start scratching beneath the surface and talking about what does that actually mean okay um and then authority okay once again here we have conquest hierarchy authority okay does this really sound to you like what jesus love is patient love is kind Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love keeps no record of wrong. Okay, when you when you uh, when you break down what love looks like in the Bible, what what uh, Paul talks about love looking like in First Corinthians thirteen, doesn't look anything like conquest, hierarchy, and authority. Okay, um, and then an insight. This is, this is a really big one and we're going to, I'm going to tie insight into the next one because once again, what is insight? Okay. Insight is really just code for you need to let your husband mold you and shape you into, you know, what he wants you to be or what he thinks you should be. Okay. This is a one up, one down relationship. This is literally the dynamic that exists in a dominant submissive relationship, which once again is a BDSM uh, dynamic. It is, it is the underlying dynamic that supports bondage and sadomasochism, okay? This is like BDSM light right here. This is what he's teaching and this is what churches are supporting, okay? So um, conquest, hierarchy, authority, insight, relationship, appreciate his desire for shoulder-to-shoulder friendship, and then sexuality, appreciate his desire, his desire for sexual intimacy. And as has been talked about numerous times, um, Sheila Gregoire has covered this again and again and again and again, you know, churches continue to promote this idea that women are just basically supposed to be, um, you know, sexual objects for their husbands to use at will. Okay. And churches continue to promote this, um, this dynamic. Okay. But then let's look at the women, like what are women supposed to do? Okay. So women's is closeness, openness, understanding, peacemaking, Okay, I want to talk about that one for a second. Okay, so closeness, of course, yes, we desire closeness. Of course, we desire closeness. Okay, Um, we desire openness. Okay, so far, so good. We do desire these things. Uh, I don't think he's wrong in saying that we desire these things. Okay, but we desire peacemaking. Okay, so this is where we take a turn. Because what he's doing here is he's literally putting the... 
um, weight or the responsibility once again on women, right? He wants this. He wants to, he wants to conquer. He needs to have a hierarchy. He needs to have authority over you. And you have a desire for peace, which means what? What's he saying here? He's saying you as a woman, you need to just suck it up because he needs all these things and you want to have peace. And so in order to have peace, in order to keep the peace, you need to just suck it up and let him do whatever he wants to do and let him have this uh, dominion over you as a means of keeping the peace. Okay. So he's saying men need this and women, you need to pay the price for it because you want peace, right? You want him to be close to you and open. And so you need to keep the peace. You need to keep him happy. You need to do whatever you need to do so that he will feel uh, safe to be close and open to you. Okay. (laughs) So this is completely contradictory to his opening statement, which is that uh, men must love their wives, even if they don't respect them. And women must respect their husbands, even if they don't particularly feel loved by their husbands. Okay. Um, this whole, his chairs and his, um, couple, uh, acronyms here, this is what is called cognitive dissonance. Okay. Because it completely contradicts his opening statement. So in the, in the beginning, in the first chapter, he paints this very pretty picture of what this looks like. But then when you actually start scratching deeper under the surface and, and you get into these acronyms and, and what is it, what does it really look like to live out his initial principle, which is women desire love and men need respect. Okay. I mean, we're already problematic from the very, from the cover where it just says women desire love, but men need respect. Okay. We're already in dangerous territory there, but he keeps trying to paint this pretty picture until you actually dig down. The deeper you get into what this really looks like, the more and more and more problematic it becomes because there is nothing loving about conquering about your wife being a conquest that's that has nothing to do with love hierarchy and authority having authority over your wife that has nothing that is not love that has nothing to do with love um so but this is what creates cognitive dissonance as he he paints all these pretty pictures of what this is but when you look at the actual working out of it, it's nothing like the initial pretty picture that he painted. Okay. Um, so we have uh, closeness, openness, understanding, peacemaking, right? That's, that's the wife's responsibility. Um, she wants to have peace. And so is it, is it really, is it, is it the man's responsibility to back down in order to keep the peace? No. Because remember, men need uh, conquest, right? They need um, to have authority, which means whose responsibility is it when there's a conflict? Whose responsibility is it to be uh, going to be to back down to keep the peace? It's going to be the wife's responsibility, right? Um, and then loyalty and esteem. Okay, but once again, we need loyalty, right? So. 
Who do we really think, based on everything else that he's written, who do we think, whose responsibility is it really to be loyal? Is it really the man's responsibility to be loyal to the wife? Or is it really the wife's responsibility to be loyal to the husband? So what you have here is the wife giving everything to the husband in both cases, in both the men's acronym and the women's acronym, both of them actually end up being about what the man needs. Okay. So I want to talk about, I talked about, you know, playing the tape forward. So let's play the tape forward. Let's say that there's a couple and they go to uh, Emerson Egrick's seminar or they go to their pastor and their pastor gives them this book. Somebody gives them this book and they try and follow this book, okay? Let's talk about uh, the long-term ramifications of this, okay? There, and, and let's talk about not even necessarily uh, like a, a highly abusive situation, okay? Let's say that uh, it's a man, he's not particularly abusive. Let's say it's Emerson Egrick's, right? And so um, he talks a lot about how he leaves his towel, his wet towel on the bed. And his wife has repeatedly asked him to not leave his wet towel on the bed. And so yeah, here, here's the thing. Every single person that you live with, be it a roommate, be it a spouse, be it like anyone that you live with is going to have some really irritating habits. Okay. You don't even have to live with them. Any, any, any space that we inhabit with other people um people are going to do things that we're going to that we're going to find really annoying they're going to drive us crazy okay but we all make these value judgments and here's how our value judgment goes we go all right what is it going to cost me to let's say like get rid of this person in my life or even just to stand up to this person Okay, whether we know it or not, we're, we do always like play the tape to the end and we make these value decisions, okay? What happens in a marriage, uh, everyone knows that marriages, they're very expensive and they're very like time consuming to dissolve, right? And the longer you've been in the marriage and the more, um, you know, the more invested you are together in it, especially if you have kids, Right. If you break that marriage apart, there is a very huge price for breaking that marriage apart. OK, so we're always evaluating like how annoying in this is this how you know, how much does this cost me versus what does it cost me to break the marriage up? Same thing with like in our job. Right. We have this horrible, horrible, horrible boss, but we get paid really good at this job and maybe it's flexible enough that it allows us to like if you're a parent, like if you're a single mom. It, you have a really good schedule that allows you to, uh, you know, take care of your child or spend more time with your child. Um, so, so these are the value judgments that we're always going to make, right? Like you might hate your boss, but your if your job gives you enough benefits to outweigh what dealing with your boss costs you, you're not going to uh, rock the boat or stand up to your boss or change jobs, right? However, what's going to happen? You, uh, you have a boss that you can't stand. You have a really uh, flexible schedule, but you find another job that offers you that same flexible schedule. And then what's going to happen? You're going to quit and go work for another company. Okay. So you're going to put up with your boss as long as 
there's a compelling reason for you to do that. What, what um, pastors and counselors need to understand is this same thing is going to happen in a marriage. Okay, so wet towels on the bed, as irritating and as annoying as that is, that is probably never going to be a deal breaker for a marriage. Okay, however, let's talk about the attitude behind it. Okay, let's say um, you have a husband who he leaves all his wet towels on the bed, right? However, um, let's say you have small children. He's a really good father. He is a really good provider. Um, he's thoughtful. He's caring. He's attentive. He just leaves these stupid wet towels on the bed, right? You're going to learn to deal with the wet towels. The wet towels are not going to bother you. Because, why? Because there's so many other things that he offers, okay? But here's the kicker, okay? Let's say he leaves all his wet towels on the bed and he doesn't, he pretty much doesn't clean up anything else in the house. If you want the trash taken out, you have to nag him. If you want, uh, if you want him to load the dishwasher, you have to nag him. Like every little thing in the house, he literally does not participate in anything in the house, right? Okay, but let's say you have two small children and let's say he does have a good job and he does bring in a good income which allows you to like be a stay-at-home mom maybe you want to be a stay-at-home mom and his good job and his you know uh bringing home a good paycheck allows you to be a stay-at-home mom so you suck it up about all of the other um you know uh the, the housework and the things in the house that he doesn't do okay um in fact, you, so let's say you nag and nag and nag and you're, you're like constantly fighting because you can't get him to do anything in the house, okay? So then you either, you go to a pastor or you go to a marriage counseling seminar and, you know, they present, you know, Egric's deal here, okay? And Egric's basic thing is, ladies, your husband has a need to dominate and conquer, so you need to suck it up and just leave him alone, okay? That's really... That's his whole entire premise here in a nutshell, okay? So let's say you take that to heart and you go, you know what? This is true. He goes to work. He brings home a good income. Um, and I, uh, it allows me to be a stay-at-home mom. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to stop nagging him, okay? Now, everything is fantastic, right? Now, he can do whatever. He doesn't have to do the dishes. He doesn't have to take out the trash. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. You know, your kids, as they get a little bit older, you get them starting to help you to, like, take out trash. And you teach them how to load the dishwasher. So you're actually getting some participation and some help from kids. But it just goes right on being completely irritating and annoying that he will not do anything inside the house right he comes home and he's like I worked hard all day of course you worked hard all day today too right but he comes home and because he's worked hard all day he doesn't feel like he needs to do anything to actually help care for the space that you both live in right he lives there he creates dirty laundry he creates dirty dishes he has to be fed so he creates work for you, but he doesn't actually participate in doing any of that work. But because he allows you to um, 
you know, li- live the life that you want, that he does allow you to actually be a stay-at-home mom. He does allow you to actually, um, you know, be there for your kids, which is important to you. You kind of let everything else go, okay? Until one day he comes home and he says, honey, I bought a boat, right? Didn't talk to you, didn't consult you, because of course he doesn't have to because, you know, he's the king of the castle, right? He rules the rules. He doesn't have to talk to you about his decisions because he's the authority. He has authority in the home, right? He Conquest and dominate and authority, like all these things, you've given those things to him. And now we've reached a point where he literally doesn't think that he has to talk to you about ever, anything, including, you know, spending, I don't know, twelve, fifteen thousand $15,000 on a boat. Okay. And now we're coming to a crossroads, okay? Now you're you're kind of starting to realize this is not working. Like you can't nag, right? You tried nagging, didn't do any good. Uh, you went to counseling and they just told you, you just need to suck it up. So you did, okay? And now he's just coming home informing you that he just made an extremely large purchase without even telling you right? But here's the thing. Um, When you go out as couples and things like that, he's going to talk about what a great marriage you have, how supporting you are, how, you know, he's going to go on and on and on. He thinks you have a phenomenal marriage, right? And he's always telling everybody how great and wonderful you are because you never nag him and you never, um, you know, uh, you, you totally support him and on and on and on and on and on, right? So let's say about the boat, you actually go and you consult a divorce attorney, right? And when your divorce attorney actually starts giving you a full picture of what a divorce will actually cost you, not just financially, but in terms of like, you know, selling your house and splitting the house and what it may do to your children and you know, all of the the sidereal costs of a divorce, once you start kind of adding all of that up in your head, you go, okay, you decide to just kind of, you know, suck it up about this very large purchase that he's made without consulting you because he doesn't feel like he needs to anymore. Because Emerson Egricks and the pastor and the Christian community have convinced him that he is the king of his domain. However, you also don't just go right back to the way things were before. Let's say that you have a degree. Let's say you have a degree in psychology and you uh, uh, have the ability to be a licensed therapist, okay? Maybe you just need, I don't know, a little more schooling or to get your licensure. I'm not sure how that works. But let's say you go through what you need to do. You decide, I want to start, you know, seeing some clients. I want to start kind of, you know, getting back out there. Maybe your kids are a little bit older now. Maybe they're uh, 10 and 12, So they don't quite require the same level of uh, supervision that maybe a three-year-old and a five-year-old did, okay? So you start um, taking on some clients. What you're doing is you're building your own ability to support yourself, okay? Now, in a controlling relationship, in a highly controlling relationship, what happens is uh, men don't allow their wives to work. There's a difference between a man who works 
in order to allow his wife to be a stay-at-home mom if that's what she chooses to be and a man who literally does not allow his wife to work and those are out there okay but let's say this guy's not that he's perfectly happy for her to start taking on some clients and and now she's even like paying some of the bills so now he's extra excited right because he's still not doing any of the housework he's still not actually participating in helping to uh you know clean up to you know do the work that he creates for her in the house but now she's also uh bringing in some income okay so life is perfect for him and this can actually go on for quite some time. Remember when all this started, the kids were maybe two or three years old and now they're like 10 and 12 years old, okay? So this has gone on for a good decade or more. And, and that's exactly th- what we need to pay attention to is that's exactly how these things can go. They can go on. We can, you know, we're constantly sort of making that, um, those value judgments in our head. Uh, is it like how on a scale of one to 10, like how bad is this? And is it worth the cost of getting out of the marriage? So far, the answer has been no, it's not worth the cost of getting out of the marriage. Okay. But now let's say the kids are 14 and 16. And hubby comes home and says, honey, I just got a huge promotion. We're moving. Okay. So now we've been putting up with this for about 15 years now. Right. And now we've come to a point where the cost of staying in the relationship, which is going to be to uproot the entire family and maybe move them across the country, right? Now, the cost of a divorce is going to be equal to or less than the cost of staying in the relationship. And this is what is so important to understand about the dynamics of what Emerson Egrix is proposing here in Love and Respect. Because what he's setting up here is a situation in which a woman doesn't have a husband. She has a father. Like we like to talk a lot about how women have daddy issues. And the worst part is we tend to blame those daddy issues on women. Instead of looking at, they're called daddy issues for a reason, which means where did we get those issues? What happens in religious culture is that women don't actually get to be fully autonomous adult human beings. What ends up happening is even um, we've taken out the part in wedding ceremonies where we talk about, you know, to love, honor, and obey. And and that a wife is supposed to obey her husband. You know who else is, is supposed to obey someone? Children obey their parents, okay? We used to tell wives that they have to obey their husbands. And that word obey is kind of an unspoken in wives need to respect their husband. This is why I was talking about we need to look 
beyond just the word itself, because the word respect can mean a lot of different things. Uh, but we need to look at what are we really talking about. And too often what we're actually talking about is obedience. And the reason we're talking about that is because, yes, it is it is uh, perpetuated again and again and again and again that wives need to submit themselves to their husbands. Well, what does that mean? When it means that wives need to obey their husband, you're setting up a one-up, one-down. You're setting up a dominant, submissive relationship, which is a kind of a light form of a BDSM relationship. All of these things are, are intertwined. They're all like right there uh, for the, to, to see, right? Um, here's another way that we know this is true. Uh, not that long ago, I don't remember exactly when it came out, but uh, the, the book Fifty Shades of Grey absolutely took the world by storm. And what kind of relationship was in Fifty Shades of Grey? That was a BDSM relationship, right? It was a dominant submissive relationship. And somewhere deep down in all women, we're, there's something that's ingrained in us. We are, we're, uh, we're programmed to sort of like pursue these relationships or to be uh, sexually aroused or sexually excited by this like dominant, like dominant submissive, right? Why? It all, and it all ties back to Disney. We got started on this from Disney. What happens? Your prince comes along. Okay, your prince, your rich, powerful prince, your prince comes along. He sweeps you off your feet and you what? You live happily ever after. Why? Because it's never, it, it's not like an insurance salesman that comes and sweeps you off your feet. It's a prince. And what do we know about princes? They're independently wealthy, right? They're rich and they're powerful. And he comes and he sweeps us off our feet, right? And he, uh, we don't have to work anymore. We don't have to, he takes all these things off of our plate for us. And that sounds really great and wonderful, okay? Until one day, you want to go and do something that your prince does not approve of. And then what happens? Then you find out you're actually a prisoner. You are a prisoner of the prince. See, at first it seems like very heady and exciting to have this man come along and just sweep you off your feet and say, I'm taking you to Paris. Just call your work and say uh, you're not coming in today. Call in sick for work, right? And then pretty soon it's like, just quit your job. You don't need to work. I'll take care of you. And that's wonderful. Like, wow, okay? Until eventually you realize I'm a prisoner, okay? We, these, these relationships seem very exciting at first because we don't, play the tape through to the end because I can promise you I can tell you these relationships never work out in the long run healthy relationships exist between two autonomous adults two adults that have equal authority to make decisions Okay, that doesn't always mean that 
you make all every single decision together. There's every relationship is going to be a little bit different, and there, you know, there is a place for trust. It there's something really beautiful when a when a man shows himself to be worthy of making decisions for his family because he's shown himself to be a conscientious decision maker. In other words, he talks to his wife and he says, honey, I've been offered this promotion and I don't know what to do. Uh, you know, what, what, what do you think about that? And then she says, well, uh, you know, one of our kids is in a really good school right now and they're really, um, they're just really thriving. And I know this would mean more money, but um, I just don't, I don't, I don't think it's really good for our family right now. Okay. Even if he's the one to make the ultimate decision, if he makes his decision based on what is best for his family, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is that seems to be more the rarity uh, than the rule itself. It seems to be more the exception to the rule than the rule itself. I've recently stopped, for, for a long time I was really um, against patriarchy and against the patriarchy. And one of the things that I've had to come to accept is the same thing, is that, you know, we can we can talk about these words, but these words look very different in, in, in different relationships, okay? So there are men that genuinely do their best to like talk to their wives and get input and take it into account and um, really try to make the best decisions for their family. Th- those are patriarchs. They're the patriarch of their family, um, but they they engage in it in a really humble way. They, they really consider themselves, they try hard to be the servant of their family. Um, if their wife... Uh, you know, got a position where she, you know, got a lot of credit or, or it was high paid or made more money than him. Um, he would be really proud of his wife. He would actually be um, bragging about his wife to other people. Okay, there are men like that. They're still like patriarchs of their family, but they're what they they use their strengths to create a safe space for their wife and their children. And by the way, this is very different from the picture that Emerson Egrix is creating here, okay? And I've, and I've spent a lot of time listening to Emerson Egrix talk. And even like as he's talking, it's that is still not the picture that he's creating. Emerson Egrix absolutely creates a picture of male dominance in which a woman is encouraged to just suck it up and not complain about anything that her husband does. Okay. Um, Another example of that is that, you know, he talks about how women need closeness, right? Yet in his book, he relates how uh, his wife went off to, I think, go see her mother. And so she's gone for several days. And so the whole time she's gone, he basically just doesn't do anything that, she asks him or their their children to do when he's there right they just they build blanket forts and they uh they don't make their bed and they eat ice cream they they just do all the things that she doesn't let them do when they're there right there's there's nothing particularly or inherently wrong with that the question is did they actually clean things up before she came home or did they just leave it all there for her to clean up once she got home okay That's the first problem. The second is he picks her up at the airport and she says, did you miss me? 
And he chooses to use this as an opportunity to weaponize her need for closeness because he says, not really. I mean, that's not exactly what he says. Um, let me think. What was it he said? Uh, he, he said, he, he, he told her about all the things that they had done when she was gone, which is basically implying, no, we didn't really miss you. And so what he's doing is he's punishing her for quote unquote nagging him. He's punishing her for having any kind of expectations of him. Okay. This is very much a BDSM relationship. It involves punishment. You punish someone for having expectations of you. Okay. Uh, some people are familiar with the Nexium cult. It, it made a lot of big headlines. Uh, it was run by Keith Raniere. And the thing that was so sort of scandalous or shocking about this is that there was a subgroup, which was, it was called DOS. Um, and it was a, uh, like a, a group of women. It was a, it was a, it was, this is exactly what it was. It was a DS. It was a, a dominant submissive with Keith Raniere being the dominant. And then uh, the women were submissives, but it was also set up in sort of this tiered system where some of the women were actually the dominance to other women. Okay. And these relationships can be really uh, thrilling at first. Okay. Um, one of the things that they talked about is how you had to always be like at the ready. So, um, if someone would send you a text message and they'd send you these text messages all day long, right? If somebody sends you a text message, you had to be like ready to immediately send a text message back, okay? Um, some of us know about, uh, so we've discovered that like social media can be addicting, right? Because what happens is every time someone sends you a like, every time someone um, like triggers appreciation, it, it sends off a hit of dopamine, right? This is exactly the same thing. When you meet like a new person and you start to have this uh, sort of connection with them, right? Every time they send you a text message, every time they say, hey, I'm thinking of you, right? It gives us like a little trigger of dopamine. This is good. This, this helps like build relationships. Unfortunately, what happens is in cult, uh, in, in cults or cult-like environments or high control groups, what's happening is they, they're figuring out how to manipulate these little like dopamine hits that you get every time you get attention. We love attention. We thrive on being given attention. So this is exactly what's happening is every time they message, it starts off great, right? It's very exciting. You know, they're messaging you several times a day, which means someone's thinking about you several times a day and you immediately message back and it's very, it's thrilling and it's exciting and it's like this new challenge, okay? But eventually it starts to wear you down because eventually it's no longer uh, thrilling or exciting. It becomes a prison. So what's interesting about this is two of the members of this Nexium cult, one of them was... Um, India Oxenberg, who is the daughter of Catherine Oxenberg, who is kind of distantly related to royalty. So, uh, you know, a wealthy family. And um, Keith Raniere 
really purposely targeted young, wealthy women. Uh, so one of these women was India Oxenberg, but Indian, India Oxenberg had a mother that was deeply, deeply invested in trying to get her out of this. Another woman that was involved in this is named Nikki Klein. Okay, and what's interesting is what's happened to India Oxenberg and Nikki Klein since Keith Raniere went to prison. And one of the things that you have to understand about that is a lot of the women were still there and still in this cult when Keith Raniere was taken away. Okay, so what you had with India Oxenberg is you had her mother kind of like sort of slowly, uh, you know, like water drips, right? Her mother is kind of like pounding, 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 um, just sort of slowly like trying to get through to her to see this is not healthy, like you're in a cult, okay? And so as things kind of started to crumble with the whole Nexium deal, uh, it was like those that that constant message of her mother kind of started getting through a little clearer and a little more loudly. Okay, so what you had was you had India Oxenberg who already had somebody that had been working on her for a very long time, so that when the cult sort of started collapsing, uh she was all she was kind of unraveling herself like that the hold that they had on her was starting to weaken basically okay and when it did collapse and when she did kind of finally kind of go back to her mom her mom got her therapy and counseling and they were able to help her literally deprogram okay then you have Nikki Klein that didn't have any of that. And so when Nixium began to fall, she's still very wrapped up and intertwined. In, she's still programmed. Okay, that's what this sort of constant, you know, day in, day out, um, the, all the text messaging and all the constant, um, you need to be, here you need to be available you need to do this you need, it, it, it works on your brain it's programming your brain okay it's forming uh what are called neural pathways okay let me let me talk about how neural pathways work um the more uh if you lived in a home when you were young for many years uh you probably w without having to think about it for too long you can probably remember um, your home address and if you if you're old enough where you had a home phone you can probably remember your home phone number without like thinking about it for too long okay that's because uh, it, it's the equivalent of like if uh, if you live in a house let's say you live in a house back in the day and there's an outhouse right and you don't mow your lawn so the weeds kind of like pop up right but there's going to be like a deep path that goes back and forth to your outhouse right because you go back and forth back and forth back and forth um and and you may go back and forth so often that you start actually developing a rut 
between the outhouse and your house. Okay, that's how our neural pathways work. The more often you access certain information, the deeper and the deeper and the deeper that rut gets. Okay, this is where addiction comes from. This is one of the like the key um, elements of addiction. Um, I used to smoke many, 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 many years ago. And I remember one of the times that I tried to quit smoking. Um, I had this habit of I would get in my car, turn my car on and then immediately light a cigarette. Okay. So when I'm trying to quit smoking, I would get in my car and I would turn my car on and I would just sit there. Like I couldn't, I didn't know what to do next. Like I could, there was something, I was like, what, why, what? And then I, and then it would dawn on me. I'm like, oh, this is usually where I light a cigarette. (laughs) So that habit was so deeply ingrained in me that when I would get in my car and I would turn my car on, I literally didn't know what to do next because you have these deeply ingrained patterns and it's so hard to break out of those patterns, okay? This is very similar to what they were doing in Nexium. This is what high control groups do is they, they ingrain these messages in you. They ingrain these messages like deep in your brain. And so the only way to get out of them is to be deprogrammed. It, it means to... Um, um, for instance, one of the things that people tell you about quit, like uh, quitting something that, uh, like quitting smoking or quitting something that's habitual, you have to replace it with something else, okay? So for instance, um, what, what I could have done is when I get in the car, instead of lighting a cigarette, I can like chew a stick of gum. I can unwrap a stick of gum and chew a stick of gum. So then what I would be doing is I would be putting something in the place of that cigarette so that I could then go on. So I'm kind of, I'm rewiring that, um, that habit. I'm creating a new neural pathway. This is what we have to do. Um, this is how we become, we, we hear about brainwashing, which is really just another word for conditioning. And it's an absolutely true thing. If you, uh, have worked in the same place for several years, uh, you might, have had this experience where you get in your car like on a Saturday like not on a work day and you start driving in the direction of your work and then your conditioning your your neural pathway takes over your conditioning takes over and you kind of lose track of what you're doing and next thing you know you're parked in front of your office right that's your neural pathways at work um, so what's interesting about Nikki Klein is when Nexium started falling apart, she didn't have anyone like India Oxenberg did to kind of get her out and get her to a deprogrammer. And so now she is still defending Keith Raniere and um, Nexium or the, the DOS. Uh, I, I think she has like a website called the, the Dossier where she's defending what happened in DOS and she's still defending it as being uh, a female empowerment organization because that is exactly what Keith Raniere convinced her he was doing. And so she hasn't deprogrammed. And so that is still the narrative that she is promoting because that is the narrative that has been programmed into her. Okay, these things are very real and they are very serious. And, 
you know, not, not every couple is going to take these teachings, so to speak, and, uh, you know, let it lead them deep into the world of BDSM, okay? But as I talked about earlier, even on a more mild level, it's essentially a recipe for divorce somewhere down the road, okay? Because what he's telling women is, this is just the way men are and you have to suck it up and deal with it, okay? And as long as um, the cost of a divorce is higher than what it is costing me to suck it up and deal with, you know, whatever he's dishing out, basically, I'll stay. But those straw, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, okay, each time I have to suck something up, it's going to create a bigger and bigger and bigger pile. And eventually that dam is going to break. Eventually that time is going to come when I go, okay, nope, uh, the scales have tipped. And now what I am being asked to just suck up and not like fight against is has that pile has gotten so high that now it's going to be less costly to get a divorce and that's where we're going to end up um so i would argue that this is just a it's a very unhealthy dynamic it creates a very unhealthy power dynamic and the problem is this is embraced by so many churches because this is literally the power dynamic that churches set up. We talk about all the time. You'll hear this all the time in churches. You'll hear submission to authority, submission to authority. Okay. Submission to authority creates a dominant, submissive relationship. And that is exactly the relationship that church leaders feel like they should have with their congregants. Obviously not all of them. Okay. Um, there are, there are absolutely positively, uh, church leaders that are, that are genuinely there to serve their congregations. Okay. Um, so I, I do want to kind of be careful of painting all churches with a broad brush or all leaders with a broad brush. The problem is that I would argue that these dynamics are so prevalent in America and throughout America, you'll find them in businesses, you'll find them in marriages, you'll find them in churches, you'll find them everywhere. And I would argue that there is not a single church in America that doesn't have someone in the church that um, promotes these dynamics, that believes themselves uh, to be you know, to sort of have God-given authority to be dominant over others, to have dominion over others. Uh, we call it authority. You know, I have God-given authority. When you find somebody that, that just really talks a lot about their authority and their God-given authority, uh, I, I would be very conscious and conscientious about that because they're just, uh, people, people give away a lot in their language. Um, so first of all, we just, we need to be aware of these dynamics and the more aware we are of these dynamics, the more likely are we to be able to spot them 
And the more likely we are to spot them, the less likely we are to unwittingly put ourselves in a position of being abused. Uh, that is absolutely not to, to blame the abused in any way. Uh, we are conditioned into these dynamics from a very, very, very young age. Um, so I may be continuing on with submission again next week. I'm not quite sure. Um, I definitely want to tie this in. I want to go back and talk about the story of Adam and Eve and whether or not you believe that uh, Adam and Eve were, were real or whether it's a myth. Uh, however you view that, it has a, I think it has a lot to say about where we are today and explains a lot about um, just a lot of, of how we experience life in America. And so I want to talk about how that ties into love and respect and how that ties into these dynamics. Um, but I might actually be doing one more week of submission and then talk about Adam and Eve. So um, I hope you'll tune in next week to find out what I talk about. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up for now. Um, just a reminder, I'm, I'm working on a series right now. I think that uh, the TV show Yellowstone is just a really perfect picture of the American church today. And so I'm working on a blog and podcast series about that that will be available to my Patreon supporters or my subscri Substack subscribers. So you can either go to um, Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Robin Thinks, or you can go to Substack, which is substack.com slash Robin Thinks. Um, and sign up on either platform uh, if you if you want to have access to that. Um, I have a new Instagram, uh, which is kind of just getting up and running. Uh, and that also, that's Robin Thinks Pod, um, at Robin Thinks Pod. And then Twitter is also at Robin Thinks Pod. I'm not super active on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm a little more active on Instagram for Robin Thinks Pod. On Twitter, I'm more active in my main account, which is Robin Thinks. So you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on, you can follow podcasts on Instagram. Uh, you know, I'm just, this is a pretty new podcast. I'm just now starting to really kind of build the following and, um, uh, you know, find the right audience for this, basically. But um, thank you so much for listening, and um, I hope to see you next week.